Well, good morning, everyone. On this Thursday morning, we're finally getting in some rain. And unless you're getting too much rain, we do appreciate that. So my intent here this morning is to kind of review what some call a pre-cover, some call a framing, a combination framing, electrical, mechanical, plumbing inspection, something that's done and it can be done and a lot of times done by a Trek home inspector because the public per se doesn't know of other people, code people. So the idea is to uh, kind of review what, and I'm gonna review what I do when I go do one of these inspections. Uh, we do quite a few, we do a few hundred of these a month. So uh, it works pretty well kind of very systematic, kind of like we do home inspections, but there is no standard like a home inspection SOP. So everybody does them a little different. And what I'm gonna do is walk you through on how I do them. Uh, I do wanna say just a couple little things when you go to get started that you kind of need to determine you kind of know who your client is. You can be doing these for a number of people. You can be doing them for a builder. You can do them just because he wants to provide something to his buyers that shows that he got inspections, especially outside the city. So he can say, I got inspections just like I get in the city. Uh, you can do them for the builder because he needs them for VA or FHA or maybe a 10-year warranty insurance program like Home of Texas or Residential Warranty Corporation. You can also do them for a buyer. Buyers call up and say, hey, I just want an extra set of eyes. Uh, and that's probably where most of the inspectors get their calls from. A home buyer that just, maybe they went out to see the house and they're like, no, I don't know that everything's going right. I want to get another set of eyes out there. You may be coming in in the beginning, just as they start the pad, looking at the foundation, you may come in at the framing. Uh, usually it's, if they don't think about it during construction, it's usually whenever they start panicking. So you may come in at any time. What this presentation is kind of like, I'm getting the call, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna do kind of, a, I'm gonna do an inspection of the house before the insulation. Uh, the standard, you know, that, that's kind of up in the air as far as what standard, as far as which building code you're gonna use. Uh, it varies, here it talks about a little bit about uh, who you're gonna do it for, the time you're gonna spend. I've seen, we know municipal inspectors doing 20, 30, I've heard of 40 in a day with office and driving time. That's long enough to fill out a tag and walk around. They're mainly geared in life safety. We're gonna go in there and maybe give some assurance of, of uh, quality. And my average visit, unless I'm there for something specific, is probably gonna be about 30, 45 minutes. Uh, if it's something very serious, I can be there as long as a home inspection a few hours. Uh, do create your own system or routine, kind of like a home inspection. My routine, just real briefly, is I show up at the site. I do take lots of pictures. Currently, my 
my picture folder as of this morning has a little over 283,000 pictures in it. So I'm a, I'm a picture document picture taker. Uh, but I'll take pictures and I'll walk around the outside first. I'm looking to see the roof. Sometimes the roof is uh, just got underlayment. Sometimes it's shingled. I look at the pitch of it. I'm looking at things. Are there areas where brick or masonry is going to be on the roof? Things that I'm going to look for when I get inside. Well, we'll walk around the outside. Uh, get pictures all the way around the outside. I'm looking at the exposed foundation. I'm looking at the sheathing on the outside. I might find house wrap. More than likely, if I find house wrap, I'm usually disappointed uh, because it's just not always done right. But I document that. And then I, I head inside. Uh, we talked about sometimes uh, why we do these. The code version in Texas, our company personally uses the 2015 IRC. Uh, for inspections in the in the 17 NEC. And that's because virtually all the cities other than one, that's what they've adopted. We have one that a little progressive and went to the 18. But the seven, the 17 and the 15 are kind of the standard. And that's what we've told all our builders. 50% of our work is outside the city, half of it's inside the city. But it gives the builders a standard to know just do it just like in the city. Not that we don't hear every day from subcontractors that say, well, we don't do that. We're not in the city. Well, that, they're going to get told this is how, this is what you would expect if you were in the city and somebody was doing a detailed inspection. Uh, remembering we're generalists. There's a lot of us out here that have lots of specialties. They key on that. We have inspectors that are like, super stucco guys, super foundation guys. Myself, I'm, I'm still like a home inspector. I'm a generalist. I play a little bit with everything. Uh, plumbing inspections, I have been called to the map by the plumbing board 20 years ago uh, for advertising, doing plumbing inspections. I started calling them plumbing consults just to make sure I didn't have any conflicts there, but really we're doing inspections of it. Energy code, you're gonna get into the energy side, which really starts at the slab. There's a lot of energy code compliance at the framing to the point where the cities around me actually don't call it an FEMP, they call it an FEMP and E because we're looking at ceiling for air barriers at the framing. Uh, and something you get to all the time, can inspect what's not there. And doing these inspections, if you've done them before, you notice one of the challenges is getting them to the house at the right time. Because maybe if the buyer is your client, you've really got to super coordinate when to get there because builders, you know, if you're expecting the builder to tell the client, the client to tell you, and all that to happen, and you get there at the right time, no, sometimes not, usually not. Getting notified, sharing the results. Uh, a lot of times I, when I talk with these clients, if they're the buyer, I wanna see if I can get permission to give the results right away to the builder because time is of the essence. Builders are not gonna sit around at this stage for days waiting for results if they know the buyers hired you to go look at it. 
coming back. Plans are great. Builders don't always provide plans. And I end up, like most of us, looking at generic uh, code references as far as how a thing should be. Uh, I want to do it after all the trades and include air barriers because once they put the insulation in, you can't see a lot of those things. Do I use the trick form? Usually not. Most of the inspections I do are for a warranty company that may have a pre-printed form, VA, FHA. If I use a generic form for a buyer, I do use the TREK disclaimer in the footer that this is not an inspection, not a TREK inspection. Why we do it, we talked a little bit about that. I do walk around the outside. I do look at retaining walls. On the foundation, you're not gonna see a lot around the outside. A lot of times it's covered up, but you're gonna see things. Is it post-tension? Have they cut the cables? Have they sealed everything up? Uh, if we do original construction elevations, you guys know using a zip or a compu level, depending on what version you have, usually that's done at the end. Uh, I don't know that I've done too many of them at the rough. I have used it at the pre-slab to make sure the forms are straight. I had a builder that just had a problem with concrete guys who weren't doing level and straight forms, and you can do it on the forms. Okay, so on the, some of the things you see when you're walking around, we don't get a lot of post-tension. There are some areas of Texas where they're almost all post-tension and probably should be bad soils. I'm in an area, central Texas, I'm kind of between Waco and Austin. On our western side, a lot of caliche rock, really stable west side, gotta go 100 feet to hit rock. So we get about a 90-10 split of reinforced steel post-tension. Uh, but some of the things you kind of notice, if you were there doing the foundation inspection, you come back later, sometimes you notice they added to the slab, like the picture on the top right, or cut it. Uh, so there's some things you, you know, just because you're there to look at the framing electrical, don't ignore the slab. Things have happened to it. Walking around the outside, like I say, I start by walking around the outside. I look at, if it doesn't have house wrap on it yet, am I looking at sheathing? If it does, I still want to try to see if, if I've got corner bracing around the outside, looking at the moisture barrier, looking at flashings. Flashings around windows rarely is done right. We know that for those of us that do a lot of these, we know the flashing around the windows is rarely done right. Uh, and builders get real creative. Uh, for the most part, Flashing is the, the the house wrap is very disappointing. I mean, you you will find after doing a number of these, and for those you have, you can see how creative builders will get. There is never nothing to write up. There, I mean, to make note of. There's many times there's like pages of stuff. Uh, for the most part, yeah, just keep noting those. So from a walking around the outside of the house, at this point, I've looked around the outside, the sheathing, the windows, see how they're flashed on the outside, uh, looking at all the penetrations. It's gonna come into play when it 
comes time to do lower doors or air barrier checks. And what you'll find out is the framer may have done everything good, sealed the house up really good. And then the electricians and the plumbers and HVAC guys, they're cutting holes. Hopefully they're cutting holes, although we've seen them drill them with hammers, make holes through the outside. And not only are they putting holes in the outside sheeting, they're putting it in the house raft, which is designed to shed the water. And if that doesn't get sealed up, water that may be shedding behind masonry is just going to run down and go right in the hole. And now it's behind the house raft. And that's just, it turns into a science experiment at that part. So once I get done with the outside, made that first list, I'm going to go in one of the exterior doors. I initially am going to look on following the load path of all the structure and I start at the ridge and I'll basically walk around looking at the ridge and coming down the rafters supports on the ridge do all the rafters are they all supported do I have purlines purline support ridge braces do they come down the walls that are braced and basically follow the path all the way to the ground most common things you find are They'll have a load path that comes down to a beam that's not adequate for it because they build going up and maybe they don't know or one crew does all the headers for interior doors and walls. Next crew comes and starts working on the roof framing and they bring down the ridge braces and purling braces and they don't put them on a load bearing portion of a wall or a load bearing header. And you'll see big load-bearing walls on little two-by-six headers that are fine by themselves, but not with loads on them. Also, after walking around outside, I've noticed if there was an area where brick was uh, designed to be laid up on the roof. It can be. IRC has it, uh, a prescriptive path for it. And, you know, for years, it's just been triple rafter and a steel lintel and flashing and you'll see everything from mortaring brick right on the osb all the way up to done having done right and so i'm going to look for those things on the underside hips ridges valleys supporting again working the load paths from the ridge all the way down decking i don't want to see any seams in the deck if i see a seam in the decking that means one of those sheets is not nailed all the way around the perimeter. Uh, clips are nice. Clips are going to try to help ensure that that gap that's required on that decking is there. And typically they'll put the clip on there and then they just drop and slide and it crushes it and the clip doesn't do anything. So you kind of want to note that. And we've all seen it on finished houses, especially early in the morning with the sun glancing, maybe some dew on it. You stand at the street and look at a house, you can count the four by eight sheets of plywood because you can see edge swelling on every sheet. And it's because it's been all jammed together, got a lot of humidity during construction, it's all opened up uh, and it will show up. And it's really bad when it shows up on a seven figure house. Shingles and flashing, you might see underlayment, you might see shingles, you might see them working on them. Uh, 
during this time when they call in the inspector to do this framing, electrical, mechanical, and plumbing, roofing might be in. If it's in, I'm looking for, uh, I typically don't go on the roof unless I see something, but I'm looking for ventilation. If it's a ventilated attic, I'm looking for the penetrations for bathroom fan, excuse me, uh, exhaust fans, all those plumbing pipe. I want to see that that they all have flashes. Now, sometimes you're kind of an in-betweener here where maybe they put up underlayment, they put shingles, but they haven't put the flashings for all the plumbing boots. There'll be a lot of notes there, a lot of pictures. Uh, and again, yeah, like Lula says there, ventilation. No, nobody's going to tell you, and you might know historically with a builder whether he's doing an unventilated seal, but there's lots of clues. You walk in, there's no ventilation. Maybe they got a demising wall between garage attic and house attic, and they've got a door up in the garage attic to go into the house attic. Big clue, you're going to have spray foam. You're going to have a sealed, unventilated attic. And then I'm looking to make sure in the unventilated portions, or unsealed, the ventilated portions, like the garage or the patios, they have vents. Those are often forgotten in a sealed attic. People have that mindset. Sealed attic, don't need any vents. Well, there's a number of areas in a house that does get vents. Uh, moisture is a big problem. See a picture there with the house wrap, felt paper. I've seen guys shingling roofs in the rain, and it's just going to lead to problems. You're going to trap the water in there. You can, sun's going to come out. We're in Texas. It's going to drive that water into the plywood, and there you go. You see all, all the four by eight sheets. Uh, one picture there where a builder actually is in the process of putting a good, he's got triple two by sixes underneath it. He's got a huge steel lintel. He's going to flash it in. He's going to do a masonry wall on top of the roof. Awesome. Steve, uh, yes. I have a couple of questions that's come in that maybe you can answer. Um, sure. The first question is, I've seen a lot of deflections this summer, mostly sagging between the rafters on houses that appear to have the thin shingles and felt paper that have radiant barrier sheathing. Is there something to look for when it is originally put together that will prevent this? These houses were around six to seven years old. Most of my experience on, like, I mean, kind of picture a garage ceiling that's had a lot of moisture, humidity up in the attic, and you start getting that little hammock, that little sag between the ceiling joists. OSB is subject to that also, and high humidity, it can be because they undersize it. I have seen people sheetrock, or not sheetrock, deck with 3 8 OSB on 24-inch on center. It will do that. Now, usually what we see is half-inch, uh, nominally half-inch plywood, or half-inch OSB, sometimes plywood, 24 on center. It shouldn't do it, but if during the construction process, it's left open, it's gotten wet, maybe they put the house wrap or the uh, underlayment on when it's wet, you put shingles on, sun's going to drive all that moisture in there, and it can do that. I mean... I don't see that a whole lot. I do see where the moisture is caused edge swelling and the edges of the decking 
has swollen up to where it makes it easier for a roofer. He can count the squares to re-sheetrock or re-roof it because he can see all the sheets. But getting the dips, I do see that. It's typically moisture. Uh, I'll see it down slope of places that are going to leak. Plumbing penetrations, uh, fireplaces, if they've leaked when that decking gets wet, and we've seen it in older houses from the underside, the decking just stretches and dips. Uh, but if I see it and the OSB or plywood is the right size, my first thought is going to be moisture. Either they drove it in there, they trapped it in there during construction. I don't think there's a there, there, there's no way to straighten the OSB if it's done that because of moisture. Once it dries, it's going to stay that way. Uh, the only option if you want to get rid of it is redeck or, you know, yeah, redeck. And I've seen where people have come back in and put three eighths on top of really warped half inch and maybe rebraced it underneath so it could take the load and it straightened it all back out. But that was on a really old house, but it had that problem. Thank you, Stephen. The second question was, how do you report where the foundation was over poured and they have to chip off the upper corner of concrete to ensure siding overlaps concrete? Oh, okay. So if the, if the concrete guy didn't brace the forms and it bulged out, I think that's what you're saying. Uh, I mean, I, we do see where concrete, the concrete forms are probably the least perfect dimensional thing happening. It's usually the brick guys and the framers that straighten the walls out and you see where the concrete bulges out uh, maybe a little too far. If it's a brick ledge masonry, not too problem, just looks funny. If it's siding, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can, I guess if you know about it soon enough at the framing, you come in and saw it off, chip it off. I don't think it's going to affect it if you're talking, you know, half inch, an inch, and you're talking kind of localized. It's just going to look bad. You probably end up over chipping it and then kind of veneering some mortar back on there, some masonry back on there to smooth it up. Uh, you don't want to be going real far, especially with post tension and getting in there. I, I don't see it go out too far. If it's gone too far, that you've got to do some serious stuff. It's usually because they just had the plane the wrong measurement. I do see where it is. It goes under, and you end up having brick that'll cantilever over the edge. And that corbelling effect you can do up to about a third of the width of the brick. Again, it looks funny, and a lot of guys will come back in with concrete, and once they do the brick and kind of patch it up, that you kind of see that the side isn't straight. But if you're talking just chipping it away, I see people chip it away all the time. I think one of the other pictures here was an interior. Okay, that bottom left picture is where they had poured a raised edge for a, a garage wall and decided it wasn't in the right place. So they chipped that away and they're gonna come back in and smooth that back out. Kind of like the upper right one, they actually added two feet to the house after they poured concrete. I'm just kind of hoping that all stays together because 
didn't get to see how that went today. Do you think that answered the question? Stephen, we have a couple other questions that's been sure. told to us. Uh, one asks, when on a frame inspection, do you ever take a moisture meter and call out the percentage of moisture? While the house is under construction and opened up, I don't personally because the wood's going to be wet. It's okay to be wet and open. I mean, trees grow in the rain. They are good in the rain. It's when we start concealing them. So if we get we get to the point where yeah, we're getting ready to insulate, and uh, we know sheetrock. You know, a lot of times you get there and sheetrock's already loaded, and it's like okay, we're 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 getting close. At that point, the house should be dried in. I get really nervous when I get there and it's just underlayment on the roof. No flashings for the plumbing, everything else. Sheetrock's loaded. Insulators are showing up and builders are throwing dice. The house is dry now. They're throwing dice. It's not going to rain. If it has rained, I've told people that, okay, we need to, typically the house is dried in. It's going to be dried in for a period of time. There are times when, like I say, the, the flashings aren't on. It's rained. You've got localized wet area, maybe in the bathroom or the kitchen where the, where the vent pipes weren't sealed, no flashing. That area is wet. That needs to dry for a couple of days before it gets sheetrocked. Uh, and sometimes it's not a brainer. You can see it. I, I don't, I haven't, I have the ability, but I haven't routinely gone in, poked the wood to see where it's at because it's going to be. You know, especially where you guys are down in Houston, it's the humidity's you know bouncing between fifty and ninety percent. All that wood on an unconditioned house is going to be pretty high, so it's going to be kind of misleading. It's not. It should not be wet. I wouldn't be. You know, if I suspected it and I hit it with a moisture meter, if it's in the upper teens, twenty percent or more, I don't think that's humidity. It probably got wet. You don't want to conceal that. It. It turns into a science experiment. If it's a little, if it's you know more than what I'd find in a finished house, it, it's going to be that way just because it's open the air. Once you get it closed in, it takes a few days to a week. Once you get it closed in, get the air conditioning on to draw the moisture out of all those building materials. I tell people when they first move in, you're going to see a lot of water coming out of that condensation, and it's going to lower the moisture content of the whole interior building materials because it's been open for months. But if I see something, if it's wet enough, I'm going to call somebody to stop work. I probably don't need a moisture meter, but I can check one if I suspect it. If I see something growing, like it's usually lumber that's been left on the ground outside in the weather for a while, uh, they need to clean it up. And I, you know, they, they get in there and they do their remediation and, you know, bleach clean it and, and or replace it. Stephen, one other, one other question. Yeah. Uh, when, they, when the bottom sole plate of the framing is spliced. Yes. And they lay a two before between the wall studs on top of that splice. Is that sufficient or do they need the anchor bolts? I say always anchor bolts. I don't think resting, you're talking about 
putting like you have two steel plates butt together and you got a stud right on the seam. Is that what you're saying? Uh, not from what I'm reading, not even necessarily on the seam. Just yeah, I don't think the weight the weight of a wall does not exclude you from doing anchor bolts. I mean, I kind of visualize it old school before nail guns where framers would lay the bottom plate all the way around the house. I like it sealed to the concrete, put in all the anchor bolts regardless of where everything goes, and then you come back, you frame the walls, cut the door openings, and you're good to go. Uh, real quick, before I leave the roof area, flashing seems to be a hot topic. A lot of the home inspectors, we are supposed to look at it knowing where the flashing is related to the underlayment is a must. Uh, once I get inside the house and I'm looking on the roof, following the load path all the way down, now I'm down to the ceiling. I'm looking at joist hangers, ledgers. The framers, for the most part, if they do things, it's a load path problem. You have the other trades, plumbers, are terrible about it. Mechanical's not too bad, electrical's not too bad, but they're the ones that are gonna come in and compromise the framing. And that's why you always do framing last. If you're doing this in stages and you're not doing all four framing, electrical, plumbing, mechanical, you do the framing last. You don't wanna do a, sometimes I'll go do the framing first because the builder wants to pay the framer and get him out of there, get the other trades in, and I may go look at it, make sure they got the load pass, got everything done right, but I'm gonna look at the framing again after the trades because the trades are gonna tear it up. Uh, joist bands, not too big of an area there. About five years ago, they did lower the spans of most soft spruce pine fir, caught some builders off guard because they kind of knew exactly how far two by six is two by eight span, and they shortened them a few inches, caught a few of them. Draft stopping fire blocking has always been a big deal. Uh, there was a big push about 20 years ago when we started doing it a lot. And then when we got into doing the air testing, blower doors and stuff for houses, then it, got ser it became serious. So we do look, I look at everything on the ceiling. I kind of look at that whole ceiling plane and see what is not getting sheetrock needs to have draft stopping. So we have chases, we have duct chases, we have plumbing chases, all the little wires, plumbing that go through the plates. I want to see them sealed. So I want basically the living space, the grade level floor, say from the ceiling down, I want that to be kind of a cocoon as air. I don't want it to be sharing air with the ventilated attic, per se. Uh, here's a good example of where the trades really mess you up. And not that I pick on one trade or another, but there's one trade that just messes up framing uh, because they got to put in a lot of big stuff. It's not wires, these are big pipes. And Plumbers with circular saws, and they just makes me nervous. Uh, but look for that load path. So it may have been fine before the trades. When you come in, relook at that load path. They're not going to do much in the attic. 
But from the ceiling down, it gets eaten up like Swiss cheese. You just want to follow it, <coughs> make sure they haven't done anything to compromise. And in addition to the load path, the air barriers. They will mess up the air barriers. They got holes going out, hose bibs, electrical outlets, mechanical. They're going to mess things up. There's a typical chase that was not caught during the rough inspection and not noted. And guys came in and sheetrocked, and here you go with the final. And that's what it looks like. You find one of these in a home inspection. This is a big red flag because if you look down it, you have four uninsulated interior walls. So it's a it's an energy thing. You're not supposed to have uninsulated walls that are exposed to ambient temperatures. There's a perfect one. Electrical guys, some of the things they like to do is kind of fur out a wall instead of running all those wires and turning that top plate into Swiss cheese. You can do that, but that chase that stud cavity still has to be blocked at the top. So you can't just randomly open it. So I, you know, I'll make them come in with another two by, block that as tight as they can, and then the insulators will go in and, and uh, block that, foam seal it. And at least you have no draft stopping, fire blocking, the same stuff they use to seal all the wires. Uh, this was a problem a while back before some builders started furring out rafters. And you can notice that one hip rafter, they wanted to make a clean sheetrock all the way across. And the rafters are two by sixes. Well, the hip rafter was a two by eight. Well, they ripped it. Uh, haven't seen this in a few years. I do find it every once in a while. You'll find a lot of these old school things typically as busy as it's been, and I know I've got everybody I've talked to in the last six months, this has been our busiest year in 42 years. We've never done as much work as this. The problem the builders are saying is they can't find enough subs. So we have subs that are retired, coming out of retirement, doing work, and they're doing things like they were in the 90s and early 2000s before they retired. So those are the ones you kind of have to look at. Stephen, I have another question for you. Yes, sir. Uh, the question says, I have seen where the builders has cut the studs to straighten them, then repair the cut with two by threes. This is often on double or triple two by fours. Is there a reference on how a repair should be done? I like to see the two by four. You're basically scabbing another one on it. And I've, and I've seen where lumber is being moved so fast it's still green it may not be that straight my house was built by a trim guy who went into the building business 30 years ago and he's a perfectionist and yes he went through all my 10 foot walls he came in with an eight foot level and put it on every stud and when it wasn't straight he would diagonally rip it about halfway through straighten it up but he would scab another stud onto the side of it that went at least a foot or two either side usually about three or four foot uh, scab onto it as long as that's secured on both sides the load path is going to continue all the way down 
I don't like them cut all the way through. If somebody's thinking about trying to straighten a stud by cutting it all, no. You know, you kind of cut it half, you know, halfway in a diagonal where you can bend it back up straight and then stab onto it. I'm okay with that. I don't think that procedure is even addressed in the building code. If it is, somebody can throw that reference up there, but I haven't seen it. A lot of these things are going to be, you know, common sense. Is the load path going to go down the wall? Less of an issue on a non-load bearing, but it's a load bearing wall. I wouldn't have any problem just, you know, slice it a little bit, straighten it up. You could even scab a whole nother stud right next to it. So it's not even load bearing or replace it. I've seen guys just, there are supers out there that if it's not straight, they just knock out that two by and put another one in. Uh, when they were a dollar each, now they're like seven or eight bucks a piece. And yeah, they're be straightening them puppies. <laughs> you think that got it? Yes, I think it answered it very well. Thank you. Uh, okay. Another question popped up. So the water pipes has to be insulated. How far in the exterior walls? High water pipe are all insulated from the whole time, from the water heater to the fixture, till it stubs out of the wall, is supposed to be insulated. That's that's part of the energy code there. That they're all done. Uh, I I mean, other pipes like cold water going to a hose bib, most insulators or most plumbers will insulate that basically to protect it, knowing it's in an exterior wall and that the insulators may not properly insulate on both sides. So, so to protect them, virtually all, and I, we pretty much all, all across the board in our place, require all plumbing service, water service pipes to be insulated in exterior walls. They may say, well, the insulator is going to get that and say, don't trust them to get those fiberglass bats on both sides. You don't want to leave. I've lived in a house that had the bathtub plumbing and an exterior wall that would freeze. We get a hard freeze. You can't use the bathtub because the water pipes were frozen. And I never, ex I never got into it. It was a rent house, or I would have, but I suspect they put the water pipes, they stubbed up out of the slab, or they brought them over from the shower on an exterior wall, and they just were not insulated and they froze. Now, insulation won't, doesn't create heat. If the water sits there long enough, insulation is just going to slow down the loss of heat. Over time, it may freeze, but I'd say everything in an exterior wall is insulated, and all hot water pipes are insulated at this time. And that's uh, you could probably justify that in any, any standard. And we also, I kind of like where they use that foam rubber insulation for hose bibs, extend it all the way out to the actual hose bib in the brick pocket to protect the pipe. I do not like to see, they usually, even if you're using PEX, they'll stub it out with copper. And I don't like to see bare copper being bricked in a brick wall with masonry. So we have them wrap it. Uh, I like to see foam rubber uh, insulation on it to protect it from the masonry dust. Hopefully that helps there. Load path, 
again, can't emphasize following the load path down. Most common thing are load paths coming down on inadequate headers. Exterior wall stud size, most everything around here is two by four. Building code allows 24 on center, most builders, just because that's the way their dad taught them, they do 16 on center. Uh, but that's just the norm. Building code is, all the, all the tables are built on 24 on center. Two by four is the standard. If it's a two story, you'll see two by sixes. If it's a very tall wall, you'll see two by sixes. Uh, braced wall segments since 2006. Corner bracing has been very uh, important. Uh, even with the builders, it always, I got houses 40 years, I've never fell over. Why are we changing? Well, anyway, corner bracing, and you can't corner brace with staples, gotta be with nails. Problem is, we get there, houses wrapped. So now you're trying to figure out if they nailed in corner brace OSB. And it, you, sometimes you got to get creative. Headers blocking at 10 feet. You got tall walls. Remember for fire blocking, you got to block at a minimum of 10 foot intervals. Treated sills, always been doing that. Anchor locations. Biggest problem with anchor locations is concrete guys don't get with the framing guys to see what size seal plates are going to use. I mean, 10 foot, so they go around and they put them at openings in the plans, they put them at every six feet. Not a house I've seen lately doesn't have drilled in anchor bolts in missing places. Uh, and it's really the only alternative is, is get the big anchor bolts, like hammer lag type, not hammer lag, but lag in bolts, and routinely we come in at the framing inspection you can walk the plate and you can probably count 10 or 15 uh, anchors that were drilled if i didn't see any concrete dust from somebody drilling anchor bolts i'm probably going to be writing up where the anchor bolts are missing or how many i mean you go in a house and you can find 20 30 anchor bolts are not they don't have them in 20 or 30 places you identify Remember, and, and look at it, you know, you've got to have at least two of them on every one, no matter how short. You can have them every six feet. You can have them within 12 inches of ends. You're going to get some that go right underneath studs. They're going to try to notch a stud. Uh, they're going to not stick up enough. You're going to have all kinds of problems. They're supposed to be now in the center of the stud. So if you see an anchor bolt right against the edge, uh, you might be asking, put one more in the center. And because that's something fairly new in the code, it's supposed to be in the I think center quarter or center third of the of the plate. Uh, again, there's a house where a builder's trying to compromise between corner bracing and insulation. And I've seen them, my house is wrapped in OSB and then wrapped in foam sheeting. So I did kind of the best of both, offset the seams. But a lot of them will do this where they'll foam they'll osb the corner brace and foam everything else uh, if you do two-story houses builders in our house are not good at two-story houses i mean good they're not experienced they, there are a few builders that that's all they do and in the last 20 years they've learned the problems of not blocking this 
what they call interstitial zone, the zone between the floors. It's supposed to be blocked all the way around. We tend to build houses in Texas, but the second floor is built in the attic of the first floor, which means this opening between the floors, if you go into the attic you have on top of the first floor ceiling, you can probably turn around and look under the second floor. Well, that's not good because the first story ceiling is not insulated and the second story floor is not insulated and it shows. I mean, you can walk into a house, two-story house with an infrared camera on a hot day and you find all that hot ceiling, you know, it's, it's got an air path. And sometimes you can bend in here and look and you can look out into the patio ceiling from the garage uh, or from the garage attic. That was a big thing to seal off. Uh, load pass, yeah, creative header over a fireplace. We kind of need that to go all the way down to the ground. Let's see here. Windows and doors. I don't know if we're ever going to get windows flashed watertight. It's almost like, I mean, around here, personally, we get our rain all at once. It dries out. If you're in an area closer to the coast where you just perpetually get lots of rain coming in off the Gulf, it's going to be an issue because these windows will leak. And builders don't look at it as it's always going to leak. How's the water get out? They're always looking at it, just try to keep the water out. And they end up taping, sealing, thinking they're going to keep the water out. It won't happen. What they've done is they've sealed the water in. So you always look at it as you've got to have a way for the water to get out, because it will. Window pan flashing, we still get builders. Every week, somebody's gone out, installed the windows into a rough frame opening, and there is nothing. It's just, you look at the, the bottom plate of the window and there's nothing there. Uh, and I've had them pull all windows, I had them pull 30, 40 windows out of a house and, Put in some window pan flashing. I like the peel and stick stretchable stuff. Works really good. Some people have started coming up with this clear pre-made. Well, it's almost, I don't know if they melted it. Works good. Flange nailing on the windows. All of us have read the instructions on the sticker on the inside of a window. It tells you how to use it, where to nail. And then you walk around the outside and you can tell the guy used an air gun, turned up too high different angles and he's just smacking the heck out of it. It's not shimmed, it's not straight. Uh, problem. I mean, it's, and then the instructions will say, put a bead of cock under the flange before you put it in the rough opening. Almost never see that. I don't mind because I put the windows in, but, and then they tape it. And then they'll put some flashing tape between the flange and the OSB maybe hold for a couple of days, get out here in the Texas sun, that flashing tape just falls off. Uh, tape and caulking window sizes. Don't forget the only windows that really need to open are typically the ones that give you the escape or the egress out of sleeping rooms. So a window or a door of adequate size from all the sleeping rooms. Don't care if the rest of the windows even open. In a lot of houses now, the windows don't even open in dining room or living room. Doesn't really matter. Uh, we do have lighting. We do have artificial lighting, so it's not much of a problem. Door landings. 
still having a problem in providing a landing at all the exterior doors. I have seen many people walk out of a garage, walk out of, it's usually a garage, where they've lowered the garage floor to accommodate maybe a slope for the driveway, less than the slope of the driveway. And you walk right out the door and your first step, you know, two or three steps, and you don't realize it, you're falling on the ground. And if you're a short person trying to get in the house from the garage, it's almost like you have to walk around the steps and reach up to the doorknob that's over your head. Get them to provide a landing. And it's gotta be a level landing. You know, I like to see good three feet direction of travel outside of all exterior doors. If it's egress door, can't have a step. Uh, exterior, I like all exterior doors installed. This has been a, a kind of a bleeding with the builders. They'll install the front door, the back door, patio door, but they don't install the garage door. Come in for framing inspections, there's just a rough opening in the garage. So why don't you put that door in? Well, it comes with the interior doors. Well, I want to see all the exterior doors because I want to see the attachment. I want the insulators to seal it. I want it in. We've got 90% of our builders are putting in all the doors, including garage doors, at the rough. Uh, even if they put in a a builder door, because they always say, well, people are going to tear it up. They're going to bang into it. Well, I need that exterior doors installed, including the garage door. And let's see. There's house wrap. Again, is not flashing, and it wouldn't even be considered that anyway, the way they've got it there. Window flashing, you see that upper window? Yeah, we see a lot of that. Uh, the window's not even nailed. Flanges are open. It's just going to funnel water in. The lower window there, you don't find it a whole lot, but when you walk around the outside, look at the windows and make sure they're in the right direction. You notice that one says inside and top. Now the top part's pretty easy. It's an arch, but inside. Uh, sometimes I've seen these stickers on the wrong side from manufacturers that look for the weep drainage holes. Uh, at a house where they had door two by two windows and had like 15 of them in, and every one of them were in backwards. But something you see around walking around the outside. That walk around the outside on the waterproof, waterproofing basically, water shedding to the outside, however you call it, windows are, are the Achilles heel there. <coughs> two story houses, again, we don't see a lot. If we do, most common around here are open web engineer trusses. Uh, we see a lot of, even on the one story, we see a lot of LVLs. Blue lambs kind of disappeared. They were big in the early 2000s. Blue lambs are nice. They got a, they got a pretty high rating before they break, but they tend to flex like diving boards. So we started, we were using them 20 years ago when they first came out over garage fans. What they found is over time, they kind of sag. Uh, again, they take a lot of weight before they break. So people start going to LVLs. Uh, they can put them in one at a time, layer them two, three. They're very rigid. They don't sag. They do allow, I mean, you, you got to watch the guys that bore and notch them just as any dimensional lumber. You got to check that out. Again, beams, making sure they're appropriately sized. 
notching, flanges, engineered. Yeah, so I like the open web trusses. Get the trusses big enough that they can put duct, air duct, flex duct in there. Uh, there are repairs if they if they mess up something, they you can, you know, it, I, many times I've gone back and told them, go to the engineer, get a repair for this. Email me the repair and I'll go back and take a look at it. Doesn't happen that often, but it, it can. Lower joist repairs, spans, again, they lowered the span. So if you're getting, you're working with a framer that's hasn't framed in 10 years, spans did come down. Who hasn't gone to see beams that are directional and the top is facing down in two line boards. Does happen. There on the bottom left, I want to see, you know, you got load bearing, load bearing beams in the bottom right. There you got a load bearing beam on top of a two by six header. I usually have them knock that out. I don't like to see two two by sixes. I like to see a two by twelve. Two two by sixes are not the strength of a two by twelve. Uh, and it's really easy, you know, they, they put a jack under there, hold it up, take that header out, put a solid two by 12 in there. I see these on some of the rakes of these upper walls. Framers get creative. There's no bottom plate and there's no top plate. It's like, come on. And usually, if it, and even sometimes it's a knee wall where it gets insulated. Uh, so that wall on the upper right picture, it's being carried. Pretty much, it's half of it's hanging by the upper rafter and half of it's sitting on the on the lower rafter, but it's not attached right. I usually don't don't go for that. And framers coming back to do something with stairs. Stairs are a problem because I want to say architects don't give you enough room to put the stairs in, and framers end up reclaiming some of a landing and trying to make a winder stair, and they don't do it right. Uh, look for bracing on the stairs. Width of the stairs, not a problem, but it's it's usually if the stairs have a turn in them, which almost all of them do, is they don't do the turn right and they don't give a landing. Uh, if they put, you know, you can put a diagonal in there as long as you meet the standards of the stair does not kind of a disappear to nowhere type stair tread. And then the Handrail has to be continuous at that point. You walk the upstairs floor. If the roof has been off for a while and a lot of weather, you can have some weathered floor. It's going to have some edge swelling. It's not uncommon for a builder to come back and be sanding or planing down that second floor. And you can do that a little bit. Some floors, some of the really nice can withstand a lot of weather before they get back. But you want to see that they're kind of feel their they're good. Weak soft spots, soft spots. Usually I see inch and a quarter or so for second story floors. Cantilevers, we'll usually see web trusses. Uh, some of the houses they'll do maybe a little patio, often upstairs bedroom. I really like to see engineered lumber going out to that. What usually is the problem is if the room cantilevers over a patio, getting the insulation in there because they will typically not have, you know, part of the framer's job is the patio ceilings. And once he does that, the insulator has really, 
at a disadvantage trying to get insulation properly installed on that floor. And sometimes, you know, they'll try to cover it from the inside and you don't notice that it's not insulated. So, I mean, if I got a two-story house, I got engineered lumber, I'm going to walk under all the bathrooms and make sure a plumber who from above does not know where the engineered lumber is and just starts wholesaling through the floor deck and goes right into an engineered piece of lumber. I don't, you can't do that. And there are times they have to move, re, kind of reorganize the bathroom to get around the engineered lumber that's in the floor. There's a stair, not uncommon. This is, this is not long ago, but from that tread right in front of my shoes, you step off to the left, there are five steps before you hit wood again. That right there is, you know, might as well call 911 now. Somebody's gonna get hurt. And there's no way to really fix this. Uh, I mean, even if you blocked that hole inside and you drive the traffic around to the right so that they have adequate depth of those treads, then you have an issue where the stairs not wide enough. So that's a problem we find it. Everything bearing on piers, you don't get that too much. Corner bracing, some cities enforce corner bracing sooner than others. Even you know, kind of what do you do when you know something is not right but the city doesn't enforce it? That's kind of a kind of a quandary there because the builders will headbutt with you saying they don't make me do it. And I get that a lot. And it's like just because a city doesn't make you do it doesn't mean you're supposed to be doing it. And it usually comes down to I get my report to the home buyers, that's the client, and they put enough pressure that, okay, you will do it, regardless of if the city requires it or not. Uh, that other one there, I don't know if it's behind my head, you can see they did a plumbing. They, they hole sawed from above and went right down into that engineered truss. Not good. That's going to require repair. Hey, Steve, we got another question for you. Yes, sir. A question says, I see lots of back door patio areas where the door is installed close to the corner and there are there is no room in the corner for anchors near the end of the plates. Can you discuss solutions? It does need an anchor. You, you need one on every door. And you can tell on a finished house, ones that don't have anchors, because if you slam the door, the whole door kind of shutters. And you hear it, you see it in old houses. But you really gotta, I, I know what you're talking about. So you, you look on the hinge side of a, a rough end of a door and it's right up against a wall intersection and you've got 12 inches to do it. Rarely do I find you don't have, you've got 12 inches of wood and there's no way to get into it. Let's put it that way. There's, a, there's almost always, a way to put an anchor within 12 inches of every end. And, and at a door, I like to see it even closer because a lot of times you'll just have that, that king stud or jack stud right there next to the door jam, the rough opening. I like to see one right there, but sometimes 
yeah, I've seen where maybe they got a patio header right uh, right next to the door. So they got that load path and they added a couple more studs right there. Uh, I, somehow you're going to have to get an anchor in there and show me that that's anchored. Uh, you'll get those one percenters where you got to do something creative. And that might be one of them there. I, I don't forego the anchor just because somebody thinks they need a load-bearing stud right there. Usually you can find something. Fireplaces. I'm not big on wood burning fireplaces. They're aesthetic. There's no heating. They're not a heating appliance. They don't produce any heat. They have some radiant heat if you sit right up on the mantle, or not the mantle, but on the, in the front of the fireplace. But for the most part, it's sucking air out of the house to burn and going up the flute. So it has a negative energy effect. It's always a drafting issue as we get better sealed houses. Fireplaces, unless they're sealed door heating appliances like you see in Wisconsin, they're kind of like air conditioners in Canada. They're there because typically a builder gets more value in a, with an appraiser than what it costs to put in. So it's a net gain and people think they need fireplaces. More often than not, when I talk with buyers, it's a problem because it takes away from wall space where they could put furniture. Uh, I'm seeing more electric fireplaces with LED, amazing LEDs that look like fire. Uh, and they're the way to go all around. Um, they do make direct vent, ventless. I have a ventless gas fireplace in my living room. I haven't used it in 15 years. Puts out way too much moisture. Mid presentation there. So if when you burn natural gas, crank that thing up, it can put out a quart of water vapor an hour. So I used it the first couple of winters. What I found is the, the uh, corner molding on the, in my sheetrock, my bullnose started popping off in my living room from moisture. Uh, I quit using it, ventless. It has other problems. You can't put it in sleeping rooms anywhere else. Direct vent seems to be the way to go if you want a fireplace. You just can't burn wood. You can't cook marshmallows. But, you know, that, that's what it is. We're in Texas. Keep, put your money in air conditioning and air sealing, not a fireplace. You don't get to use it that much anyway. Okay. okay. Distance from combustibles. If you do put the fireplace in, make sure they put it in right. Fire, you know, it's, they got the, the flu away from combustibles. And chimney height. Get it secure, get it sticking up through the roof the right distance. If it is a ventless, you know it's gas, then you want to make sure the gas lines are in. You got a shutoff valve. Some are trying to put the shutoff valve in the firebox because it's under the unit. I'm not big on that. But oh you, you'll see, like that top left, fireplace was on the framers plan, but not the slab plan. Not very often, but it can happen. Make sure the fireplace is finished, flashing. So you've got that fire blocking in the fireplace chase. 
between grade levels and between grade and attics. So if you've got a two-story, you're going to have two of those flashings. Uh, if you've got spray foam, you're probably going to have two. You've got one at the ceiling of the room where it's at, and make sure it's in correctly and sealed, not down here on top like in this picture or attached the wrong place. But it's, it's on the ceiling, and it's, work, it's installed properly. If you're doing a spray foam house, which I think is really not smart with a wood-burning fireplace, you need another one of those as it goes through the roof deck because you can't leave an unfinished chimney chase through the roof deck and try to have a sealed attic. I do see that. If, if I've got a fireplace and I'm doing the rough inspection, I'm gonna look, I'm gonna follow that fireplace all the way up the roof and I'll probably see a frame chimney and the glue going right up through the middle of it. And I asked the builder, I said, your spray foam insulator, he's gonna go across that roof deck. What is he gonna do when he gets to that two by two hole where your glue is? He basically needs to put another metal flashing so the guy can foam right up to within the distance that's allowed of that glue. But it's air sealed. Uh, electrical. I really try to ensure that the electricians are wiring to the electrical code adopted by the state. Electrical code out of TDLR is probably the most progressive of the licensing entities. They require the electricians to follow what's followed by the state regardless of the city. So it doesn't matter if the city's adopted the 14, they should be wiring to the 17 because that's what their license says they have to do. And usually doesn't, not a problem unless they're out in the country. We did one this week, went to go do the rough in, not a single arc fault breaker, GFI in that house. I found out it was an old electrician came out of retirement and he didn't think those things were really important. So really look at it we kind of inspect by the 2017 i know one of the other presentations is a 2020 update that's really good it'll be coming i do have one city that is workshopping the they're on the 18 they're workshopping the 20 electrical code so be familiar with i think those <clears throat> those classes of significant changes are awesome and that's something to do but we follow the electrical, we follow the 2017 service location. We're going to look at it and see if everything looks good there. Uh, switch and outlet receptacle locations. That's kind of a tedious feat to walk around and try to say, okay, all the outlets are there. Don't see that much of a problem. Light switches, don't see much of a problem. Probably the most common is smoke alarm locations. They'll put them right inside the door when the ceiling pops up for a cathedral ceiling. It's supposed to be within 12 inches of the highest part of the room. So that's the most common thing that they'll change. Or they will rough in the smoke alarm in the hallway and they're the first ones there. And then the HVAC guys come back and they put a return right next to it. You can't have a smoke alarm right next to a return. Odds are the electrician's going to lose that battle because it's easier to move that smoke alarm. 
And that's why sometimes you'll see the smoke alarm for a little short hallway or a niche going into a master bedroom actually out into the main room. But you open, it doesn't open right next to the kitchen. Because then you got to deal with cooking appliances. And then you find the smoke detector outside the master bedroom. It's way over in the corner of the dining room. The first available location it can go. Wire sizes. I don't know that we get into any specific wire sizes. I look for big feeder wires. I look for appropriate wires heading into the laundry room and the kitchen where I know we got 240 volt. Uh, pretty much everything's wired with 12 gauge. Uh, secure wires, not a big problem. I don't like to see rough wires sticking out in the socket without a box. <coughs> so every place there's gonna be a fixture, I wanna see a box. And there's few exceptions to that. Uh, I want to see a box. Sometimes they'll rough it in and just kind of wave it in a wall behind a vanity because they don't know where it's going to pop out. At that point, I'm going to try to verify it's got a box at the final because I don't want to see somebody leaving a wire hanging down for a security light in the corner of the soffit. And they basically just wire nut it and use the back cover plate of the security light. No, it's going to be in a box. And there's no reason they can't rough those in in a box. And we do see that a lot. Um, not much of a problem trying to convert tinted can lights. Almost everybody's going to those little LEDs, almost surface mounted LEDs, almost exclusively. But you can see the big can lights can be a problem. There's one there where engineered truss was in the way. That's where they wanted to put it. Uh, electricians sometimes can be like plumbers and just knock big holes in the wall. And then also, again, they don't want to run holes through that top plate. So they knocked out the exterior wall foam really easy, just ran around it. Now that wall cavity is now blocked. They got to do a very good little creative. I'm not big on foam as an exterior sheathing any more than thermal ply, but with OSB, I know this week it's hitting $27 a sheet. Builders should be looking for options. And that that's going to be something to deal with. I had a builder ask me to study up on that red thermal block. I guess they call it like a structural because he may be looking at that at you know when it hits thirty dollars a sheet for OSB, he's got to do something. Steve, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Uh, do you actually have a checklist of these items that you inspect? to reference during the inspection or do you follow a general process? I I mean, we've got a checklist, but it's not in sequence, kind of like a home inspection. You know, you look at the Trek report and nobody inspects in the sequence of the report. They have their own sequence and then you just kind of populate the report and it's the same here. I mean, most of the guys that I inspect with that do this, you know, they'll start with the outside and then go in and work on the load path, the framing coming down, then they're looking. So I kind of put this presentation in the sequence that I do the inspection. Is there a checklist? I'm sure I've got one somewhere where I've done training for maybe an, uh, an inspector or gone over things. Uh, 
but that's something yeah we could kind of put together uh, and maybe have it provided for the association for somebody who who wants to kind of get organized and nothing worse than getting back to the house doing your report like a home inspection and forgetting did that house have a microwave or forgetting something nice to have a checklist on site i'm a checklist yeah, that would be good, Steve. We appreciate you sharing something like that with, yeah. with our members if you get it. Yeah, we could put that in, you know, I'll work on that and get something. We'll put it on the website in the uh, documents. I'll get it with you and we can put it up there for you. All right, thank you. Uh, HVAC, the biggest changes in the building code have been in energy efficiency and, and a part of that is the HVAC system. Uh, Contractors typically didn't size, cities didn't ask for verification. They did the old square foot per ton. They don't even, they didn't even require a set of plans. They just load the, you know, it's a 2000 square foot house. They knew what to load on the truck. They'd head out, they just put it in. Uh, it's kind of like putting a V8 in a Volkswagen. It'll meet their needs for a number of years. But at some point, there's going to be problems with it. Uh, manual J, manual D, required in the building code, rarely asked. Some of the more progressive cities are requiring them to submit it now. I know because I get asked by the city to come give a class to the inspectors on how to read it, interpret it. Uh, duct sealing, because of the requirements for duct leakage and building envelope leakage, I look at the rough to see that they mastic seal. And I'm not, and, and most of the mastic that they use to seal these ducts, I shouldn't be able to seal, see unless I pull back the insulation. I don't want to see insulation seal to a plenum. I want to see the duct liner. We'll talk about that. Time to test it. We do most of our testing. We do lots of these. We do them at the rough. That way, if there's a problem, we can find it. Nothing worse than doing a duct leakage test at the final and have a leak. And you can't find any of the registers from the attic. You don't know where it's leaking from. Follow the ducts. Look for locations. And still, every once in a while, we'll find an air duct going to a garage. Uh, you'll find that. This builder always puts one in the big master walk-in closet and they forgot. So I just kind of follow the ducts and see if it makes sense. I'll, I'll find the plenum, the supply plenum, and I just kind of glance up at the attic and I'm following, okay, I got one going. I got a big one going to the master suite and it splits four ways. I hate the little wedges, boxes, people are gonna use them. Uh, if I see one really crazy, I will call it out. Look for that the ducts are somewhat straight. They're supported. They don't always have to be hanging. Hanging is an issue that was designed to fix the problem of putting insulation on the ceiling under the duct. Other than that, ducts are perfectly fine laying on the ceiling joist. You just gotta watch the little turn at the end so you don't have a kink at the end where it turns down and into the register. Access to equipment, I don't think we've had a problem with this 95% of the time, but yeah, you still get 
every once in a while, you've got to have that walkway. Also, framers will leave a four by eight sheet for the HVAC guys to put their equipment, thinking they're going to slide it to one side, so two foot of it's a work platform, but no, the HVAC guy puts it right in the middle. Now you've got a toe step to stand on, and they need a work platform. You need a work platform, you need a light, you need an outlet receptacle, all those things I look for at this rough stage. We're doing that duct test. That's kind of what it looks like on a finished one. There's a plenum that I like to see. Some builders build them right there on the ground. They want to seal the collar. So they'll, they may seal the duct to the collar, but if the collar is not sealed to the plenum. So there's every place there's a possibility of air leakage. I want to see seal. Uh, plenums, I want to see an adequate return. Sometimes they put a huge grill and you look behind it, half of it's wall because they put the deck. I, you know, if they're doing this in upflow in a closet on a platform, that platform probably needs to be three feet off the ground. I know in the garage, you got to have at least 18 inches. 18 inches won't give you enough return opening on the inside of the house unless you've got a lot of wall. So we're seeing these up tall. We're probably seeing them as tall as you can get and still wedge the air handler, maybe the water heater if they're sharing, into that opening and not hit the ceiling. And that gives us a big enough return path. Duct, duct suspension, duct supporting can be a problem. Just because that strap is compressing the insulation doesn't necessarily mean it's compressing the duct. But if I've got an issue, a call back from somebody who says this room is really, I got one room that just won't cool off in the summer. I kind of look at three things. Either it's not dumping enough cold air or the insulation is poor. We got some air leaks. You know, there's a few things, but first, one of the first things I'll do is go in the attic, follow the ducts to that room, see if it's got a tourniquet on it somewhere. Plumbing. Long time. We've got about 15 minutes. We'll get through these. Plumbing voted the most likely person to create structural problems. Uh, they cut everything up because they got big stuff that's got to go in. Nothing worse than a plumber trying to fit a three inch vent pipe in a two by four wall. That's the first thing the framer ought to be doing is looking at the bathroom and the back wall behind the toilet where that plumbing's going to go. He sees a three inch pipe. And in the slab, he needs to be putting at least a two by six wall above that pipe. Water source and waste, and I'll follow all the pipes from where it comes in. At this point, I want to see water pressure on the supply side and want to see a leak test on the drain waste and vent. And we've been doing this for years. So hopefully you got water. I don't like air at this point. Air may be at the plumbing rough before the slab, but now I want to see water. Hopefully they got a meter in, they got water pressure to it, uh, where I can check one of the hose bibs and somebody outside walk around is, yeah, hit a hose bib, see if I got water coming out. I don't got water coming out of a hose bib. I know I won't have verification of a water leak on the inside. Uh, water check. On the drain waste and vent, we've done a leak test on the plumbing roof before the slab, but now we've got another 100 dude joints above the slab in the wall. So now we're doing a leak test on that plumbing in the walls. 
And usually what you'll see is they'll just take one of the labs, come out the wall, and then go up five feet, four feet, and they'll plug everything else up and they'll fill that one. And we'll, the, the intent is to check the leaks and all the above frayed plumbing joints on the drain waste and vent. That's pretty much a standard. They don't have that. I see it every day from inspectors coming back. You know, they fail. What do they fail for? No leak check on the drain waste and vent to go up. Gas, if they've got any gas pipe in there, yeah, we look for the bonding jumper, but I want to see a gauge on that thing. Look for pressure test. We typically look at for 10 pounds of pressure on the gas. Nail plates, nail plates are still a problem. 10, 15 years ago, we went to the oversized nail plates and top and bottom plates of the house because you don't know who's putting crown where and the crown guy will go below that nail plate and hit a pipe. So big nail plates on the top plate and bottom plate of the walls. Freeze protection, we talked about that, wrapping all the pipes in the exterior walls, the water test, water heater pan, train, pan drain, and TMP discharge locations. I don't like it just sticking out the slab behind the air conditioner. It's got to be highly visible to the occupants. So uh, that's been a that's been a learning curve with plumbers who just always want to run it through the slab. TMP gets trapped. They pop it up in a wall out the outside. Now we're going to run it down the wall. So we hope that where the water heater is, it has an exterior wall to get outside and doesn't have doors on either side where it can't go anywhere. You don't see a lot of copper, but you what you find is if you do have copper, Plumber's forgotten how to solder. <laughs> You'll see it really looking bad, and I suspect that. Plumbers will cut things up, trying to fit things. I like in the kitchen, run the drain pipes, maybe in the back of the cabinets, or make that two by six walls. There's no way to put a two inch pipe down a two by four wall, because above that's probably gonna be a beam because we have open concept houses. Big problem. Still seeing Vinyl, uh, yeah, this is a vinyl shower liner. I like to see a water test in those at that time. Uh, those are always kind of a problem. We don't see a lot of those. We see a lot of cultured marble finish bring in at the end help. Exclusions, again, back to timing. Things you don't see, make sure that you document things that were not there, that you expected to be there. Uh, still a problem getting notified, uh, get there at the right time. Sometimes you work a contract with a buyer and you work out a deal where, can I work directly with the builder and the superintendent to make sure I get there at the right time? Best thing to do. Generalist, is this something wrong? I've got the old phone a friend. I've got an electrician on phone, I've got an HVAC guy on phone for specific things that I don't know. Guarantees, yep, that. Reinspections, I do end up going back on half of these that I do, especially for homeowners. Well, it, really for builders, they don't have a choice. Homeowners sometimes. Hey Steve, we've got two more questions for you. Let's go with it. Okay, do you write up the duct taps coming from the top of the extension? 
duck. Oh, you mean where you tap into the plenum. It depends on it. Yeah, the, 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 the manual D talks about areas that you obviously don't want to try to utilize. I, the best case is you have a long plenum, and I may, yeah, usually what you want to see is a long, in the next class is an HVAC where we talk a lot of this specifically, but you'd like to have a long plenum to where you can run all your branch ducts off of the sides. Now there's, 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 you know, you obviously don't want to use the end, the direction of the velocity coming out of the air handler. And there's some theory of not using the bottom or the top. And most of the good HVAC guys are going to use the sides. Looks like a V12 Jaguar or something. Just got all these ducts coming out of the sides. Sometimes they are restricted in size where you can't have a long plenum. I'd like to see like a 10 foot plenum or as long. I've got one couple of contractors. They'll run the plenum all the way to the other end of the house and do short duck runs and they'll step down the size of the plenum. Awesome. Sometimes you're crowded and you can't put a big plenum and you're really working to use everything available and you never use the end. You might end up using the top. You want to stay oh, as far from the air handler as you can get. But there are some preferred paths, air paths that you, you know, you want to avoid interrupting inside the plenum. Uh, it's kind of a best case scenario. It's not always going to work. But yeah, you try to you avoid the end and you try to avoid the top and bottom. Okay. Yeah. Another question is that you've talked about calculating manual D. Yes. You're going to return air plenum leak test, drain pipe leak test, and supply pipe leak test. How are you going to do all this plus everything else on a 30 minute inspection? Well, the leak test doesn't take very long. It's got water in it. You know, I don't see any wet spots walking around the house. Leak test is holding. Uh, so that's really pretty easy. The duct test is completely separate. It wouldn't be part of the this pre-cover FEMP inspection, but I tell the builder this is the time to do it. And probably 90%, 80% of our duct tests are done at the rough. And if they're not done at the rough, it's usually because the superintendent forgot to call us. Uh, or it's a new builder that just didn't know he even needed a duct test until he called the city for a CO. And they're like, where's your uh, performance test, your duct test and blower door? And a new builder's got that deer in the headlights look. And that's where we get a call and we're doing it on a finish. <coughs> I don't like doing the duct test on a finish. It's just hard to do. You're taping the registers. You stand a chance of blowing some paint off around the registers. And if it leaks, I mean, there's so many opportunities for it to leak and not pass. 4% of the square footage of the house as a leakage limit is pretty low. And uh, not everybody can get it. At the rough, I'd say at the rough, we're probably at like a 95% pass rate. At the final, we're lucky past the 50% pass rate. But it is a separate inspection. But best done at this stage. So from the time the HVAC guy drives away, 
until the sheet rockers drive up is our window of opportunity for new duct testing. And it's ideal. Plus, when you do the duct test, you're covering all the registers with that mask tape and you leave it. And that way the builder can mark it, hey, our ducts are hermetically sealed during the construction process. So there's no paint, texture, sheetrock dust, anything in your ducts. When they come to trim it out at the end and cut that tape out, it's new out of the box. There's all kinds of ways to try to work that. But so in you know, all those things, I say 30 minutes, yeah, that's probably a, a minimum. There's times, especially when I find a lot of things, I'm trying to write them down. I can find myself being there an hour. Uh, but for the most part, for a builder, for people that we're familiar with, crews we're familiar with, 30 minutes is a good ballpark figure unless you're there to do something specifically detailed. What else? We got another five minutes. We yeah. do have a, about another five minutes before the end of class. Um, I am looking at any questions that may be coming in. Let me see what we got here. There will be videos for people to have uh, available sometime next week. That was a question that uh, came in. Okay, and I'll, I will put kind of a checklist, of kind of a follow the path of the checklist of things that I look at, and it can be one of two ways, just kind of a like a trick checklist of all the things I look at and one kind of a sequence of the easiest way to do it. And you, and you really need to have your own sequence. You know, most of us, they've been doing home inspections for a while. We have our way of doing it. And it's same here, the, whatever works for you so you don't forget things. Worst thing is you're halfway through, get a phone call and you end up walking out or, or forgetting something. And it's like, oh, and I've stood at the truck and sat there, look back at my notes and I'll scroll through my pictures because I use my pictures as kind of my reference that I took care of things and inspected things because I take pictures, not just of bad stuff, but of good stuff too. And I use it, I kind of go through the camera. Okay, I got this, I got that, I got the water pressure gauge, I got the gas gauge. You know, I'm kind of looking at all those things and I use those pictures and I sit in the truck with my notepad and I write down all the defects. And if it's a builder, I may call them right there and say, here, get pen and paper and start writing down and I'll send this to you later this evening, but you probably want to get some guys started. If it's a home buyer, I tell it, I'm done, got some things, I'll get a report to you later this evening. But you need to kind of have a checklist, especially when you're beginning to do this, because it's real easy to get distracted, get focused on one thing and not step back. And a lot of times I'll walk out and I'll stand there for a second and I'll go back in. Oh, I forgot the windows. Oh, I forgot, you know, the, the fireplace wasn't in. I got to make a note of that. But, you know, it's, there are so many things and you are a generalist. You're not there to look at, you know, if I'm there just to look at outside waterproof membrane, that's going to be an easy one. But if I'm looking at everything, generally, it's, it, it's taken a while to learn it and to to be able to do it with, you know, 
some reasonable skill. I mean, I've, I don't know how many I've done over the years, probably at least 15,000 of these. Uh, we're contracted with a number of cities, half a dozen cities, to also do them for the city. And we kind of use the same standard. One last question, and it's, do you look for protection plates over low voltage wiring, cabling, et cetera? Typically those are so small and so few, they put them in the center of the, the framing so that it doesn't need them. There are times when you don't need it for electrical wires. You know, you're, you're only looking at that distance from the face where sheet rockers will get it. And I told you, I mean, when you say low voltage, we've got cable stuff. So most of the people now run them into a central structured wiring box and they may have them into the rooms, but they're, they're not like groups like electrical other than the one right above the box. And I will see nail plates there because they're gonna be too close. But I look at the wiring for those just like electrical wiring. If it's close enough to the edge, it would need it, but I rarely ever see it. I mean, I, I mean, it's a lot of times a little 22 gauge wire security or cable, and it's so small. And those guys are, I guess maybe just around here, they're pretty good where they put it right in the middle of the stuff. 